I wonder if any of you have seen the following pictures. And for the benefit of those who are listening by recording, they are pictures depicting an incredibly beautiful home. Pictures that were sent to me quite some time ago. They are palatial, lavish, extravagant, impressive, regal. All kinds of words could be used to describe these scenes. Anybody know what they're what they are, where they're from. I don't believe a word of it. Dream on, Mary. Dream on. Anybody know? Here's what came with it. This mansion is in Harare and belongs to the President of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, while his people starve and die because of no medical help We are asked to help his people over and over again. He and his family live like this. His greed kills his people. I can't stand over that, but I did actually go back onto the World Wide Web and look and see if I could find these. And what you've seen tonight is exactly what I found, if you go onto the website and look for it. By complete contrast, here is a scene which I did witness for myself in a visit I made to Lima in Peru. I had the privilege of visiting both Peru and Bolivia that year and was during that time that I toured the shanty towns of Lima. Houses made from straw matting, houses made from cardboard, homes for millions of those who had come from the mountain areas into the city in search of a better life. At least so they were told. And it's not just an isolated problem in South America. Similar pictures exist in parts of the continents of Africa and Asia. Here in Sierra Leone, here in Calcutta, India. What's your reaction when you see these pictures? On the one hand, you have opulence and luxury and abundance. And on the other hand, you have poverty distress, destitution, producing some of the most basic living conditions imaginable. How do you react? Middle class Western life reacts in different ways. Some of us are shocked and horrified. How can such injustice and inequality be tolerated? Those with high ideals suggest a radical overhaul of our social structures. For example, implementing or restructuring of national health care programs or government subsidized housing. Some would envisage a revolutionary violence, though the history of Marxism in various countries leaves leaves us with very little to encourage us as to its effectiveness. The gap between the haves and the have nots has narrowed very little in this past century. Others would opt for a capitalist influence, yet at least one writer indicates that such a system introduced in the States in the 1980s and early 90s simply led to an even greater disparity between the rich and the poor. Another reaction is quite different still. 
It's a reaction which, sadly, I heard from a Christian businessman in a conversation I had with him. And he said of those living in abject poverty in Asia, and I paraphrase his words, leave them to it. It's their own fault. How much longer can we in the Western world keep on financing their laziness, their criminality, their irresponsibility? And his attitude illustrates what others believe. If they really wanted to do, if they really wanted to, they could do more to help themselves. At the end of the day, they're getting what they deserve. Now, however correct that opinion might be in isolated situations, it's an attitude I personally find offensive in the extreme. It certainly doesn't fit the picture that I saw in the shanty towns of Lima. Because in Lima, I find communities of evangelical Christians struggling to survive, despite laboring conscientiously to bring about change to their situation, while yet literally just a matter of yards away, there were those whose properties by local standards were palatial, enclosed by high fences, protected by armed guards and alarm systems, the haves keeping the have-nots at bay. Magnificence and abject poverty side by side. How would Jesus react to such discrepancies? Well, Jesus once told a story about precisely such a situation. The story begins in Luke 16 and at verse 19. If you want to follow with me, please keep your Bible open. It's page 1050 in the Pew Bible. We continue with our series, Tales of the Unexpected, this evening as we look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 16 and at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was led a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The parable Jesus uses here begins by drawing attention to the very issue of the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. First, Jesus paints a picture of the rich man, a very rich man. Purple dye was extremely expensive, usually only found in garments worn by royalty or the like. It was costly, as was linen. Both were considered to be the height of luxury. And commentators tell us that the phrase lived in luxury, which you find in that reading, comes from two words. One meaning to be glad, enjoy oneself, rejoice, celebrate while the other means splendidly, sumptuously. The rich man doesn't need to work, so he feasts in this way every day. So if you like, the rich man lived in sumptuous luxury. However, the picture Jesus paints about the poor man, Lazarus, is very different. Jesus contrasts the rich man with a beggar the poorest of the poor. The beggar's name is Lazarus, and it is interesting to note that he is the only character in any of Jesus' parables who is given a name. 
In Jesus' eyes, he's not just a beggar. He's special to Jesus. He is lying at a suitable place for begging. Living next to the rich man's gate, dumped there by his friends. And I say dumped there because at his gate was led a beggar. Is, I'm told, much too gentle a translation. He was thrown there. He was dumped there. The original literally says he was thrown at the gate of the rich man, sprawled out to face the contempt and the rejection of those passing by. On top of that, he is sick, covered by numerous ulcerated sores, and he's hungry, longing to eat the scraps from the rich man's table, scraps usually given to the dogs. Dogs, by the way, which were anything but pets. First century Middle East dogs were considered unclean, wild street dogs that scavenge the rubbish and then sniff around the poor man's sores, licking rubbish germs into the already ulcerated sores. It's not a pretty picture. Far from being a picture of comfort, it's one of abject misery. A large part of Jesus' audience would have grown up with the belief that riches were a blessing for obedience, with sickness and suffering being a punishment for sin. You'll recall the story of the blind man in John 9, which illustrates this perfectly. John 9, verses 1 and 2 say, As he went along, he saw a, blind man, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And back in Luke 16, the audience Jesus was speaking to must have been astounded when he carried on with the story in verses 22 to 26. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And Jesus really shakes his audience in this particular part of the story. They get a totally unexpected slant on who ends up in heaven and who ends up in hell. Hence, if you like, our tale of the unexpected. Some weeks ago I told David I had chosen to speak on this particular parable and he told me I was a brave man. I wondered what he meant. I wonder no longer. I suppose that you, like me, have heard more than one sermon on this passage and I suggest you heard it from a very strong evangelistic standpoint. Now let me say right away, there's nothing wrong with preaching this passage from that strong evangelistic standpoint. 
but I do caution against using this passage to teach in detail the doctrine about the last days or of the life to come. Yes, I know how the parable speaks about heaven and hell, about torment, about the agony of fire, about a great gulf fixed that can't be crossed. But if this passage is to be taken and used exclusively for teaching about the doctrine of the last days and of the life to come, then I have a problem with a number of issues. But as David would say, that's for another time. And this evening, I'm not going there. The entire context of this parable circles around stewardship. Last Sunday evening, we were challenged by the question, can I be a Christian and not be forgiving? And perhaps a similar question this evening could be, can I be a Christian and not be a good steward? Can I be a Christian and not be a good steward? At the commencement of Luke 16, we have the parable of the shrewd manager. It's a parable about the importance of how we value money and how we use our material possessions. Jesus was is talking to Pharisees who were lovers of money. And in verses 14 and 15, if you look there in verses 14 and 15, we read, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. They scoff at Jesus because they are lovers of money. Jesus has touched a raw nerve in their lives. And beneath their religious veneer and their hypocritical piety, they love money. But look back at verse 9. Verse 9 says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In other words, your money will do you no good on your deathbed. Where you and I will spend eternity will in part, now please hear me and please do not misunderstand or misrepresent me. Where you and I will spend eternity will, in part, be judged by how we use the material blessings that God has given us. I am well aware that salvation is by faith through grace. I will never compromise that. However, there are clear lessons to be learned from this parable, especially in an age that promotes health and wealth or the prosperity gospel. The last five verses of this parable disprove such false teaching. Verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And in these verses, the rich man pleads for Lazarus, the poor, destitute beggar. 
The poor, destitute beggar he ignored. The poor, destitute beggar he had no time for. He pleads to Father Abraham that Lazarus be permitted to go and warn his five brothers to repent so that they would not end up where he was despite all his wealth. You see, his wealth meant more to him than a relationship with God. If repentance is, and it should be, a change of action, an about turn from the life he was living and not merely sorrow for sin, then he messed up big time. Each and every day he was living it up in luxury and totally ignoring the need on his doorstep. As a Jew who knew Moses and the prophets, he ought to have remembered the important teachings of Old Testament scriptures. Old Testament scriptures such as Deuteronomy 15.11 There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. He ought to have known too verses like Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. There were for the rich man these and other such scriptures which he ought to have taken on board. Yet he did nothing to help the one at his own front door. And there remains for us today similar teaching in God's word. Not just in the Old Testament, but when you come into the New Testament, you find that teaching as well. James chapter 2 verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And also in 1 John 3, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And there are other similar passages right throughout scripture and you'll be aware that in some extremist Christian circles there's a mindset that says you can't be rich and be Christian that is not what the scripture teaches because if it did that would exclude every one of us in middle class western Christianity by global standards you and I are filthy rich By global standards, you and I are filthy rich. What scripture consistently teaches is that it is impossible to be both rich and Christian without at the same time being generous and sharing what we have with others. And how can we know whether or not we're being Christian and generous? Well, let me give you one very simple A practical thing that struck me as I was preparing this for tonight, and I have to say it haunted me. It challenged me to begin with. Take a look at your check stubs. Or take a look at your bank statement. Or take a look at your credit card statement and ask this question. Who benefits most 
from the checks that I write? Who benefits most from the checks that I write? Paul in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 teaches probably the most extensive uh, teaching on this particular subject. And Paul does not ask the people of Corinth to trade places with the poor. But he most certainly does ask them that they do two things. One, give out of their surplus. And two, he asks them to be ruthlessly honest about what their surplus actually is. I read this week a couple of a couple in America who looked very closely at this whole subject. And here's what they had to say about where they were. They say, we reckon that between 30 and 50 billion dollars a year could meet the most essential human needs around the world. Projects for clean water and sanitation, prenatal and infant maternal care, basic education, immunizations and long-term development efforts are among the activities that could help overcome the poverty conditions that now kill and maim so many children and adults. They went on to write, that figure of 30 to 50 billion dollars may sound like anything but good news. God has been gracious, you may agree, but has he been that generous? They write, consider this, if church members in the United States would increase their giving to 10% of their income, there would be $65 billion per year available for overseas ministries. And 15 billion dollars a year for meeting the needs of our neighbours across town even while maintaining current congregational programmes including building projects the problem of course they write is that most Christians don't and won't give 10% of the Lord's work the current averages for American Christians in general run somewhere between 2 and 3% I use that purely as an illustration of where they're coming from The point, however, is not the percentage. It's the attitude. And maybe you sit from time to time and begin to get a bit aggravated with preachers or speakers who raise the subject of giving or tithing. Maybe you've already pondered the question of how you might or might not be able to give to our development fund, which was announced and is soon to be launched. But it seems to me it is logically impossible, as we heard last Sunday evening, to say we've experienced God's forgiveness without forgiving others, or that we know his love and generosity without loving and being generous to others. God has been phenomenally generous in giving us eternal life. And when he has blessed us with material blessings on top of that, how can we not share generously from it? if his spirit dwells in us and guides us. And I know that I belong to a church that is generous. I've seen it. We all know it's there. But so what? What should we learn from this parable? Jesus, what are you saying to us today in the age in which we live? In a sense, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus teaches a similar lesson to that of the unjust steward in verses 1 to 9. We can use our money in a way that deeply affects our eternal destiny. That's what the teaching of this passage is all about. But there's more to it than that. William Barclay titles this passage, The Punishment of the Man 
who never noticed. The punishment of the man who never noticed. Lazarus was at his door and he didn't notice. Who is at our door that we don't notice? Is it needy illegal immigrants who avoid the social welfare system for fear of being deported? Is it a community so deeply affected by racism that it drives others back to their homeland, as we witnessed in this very community some few weeks ago? Or is it divorced mums with no kids who are living below the breadline but who are too proud to ask for help? Families where the breadwinner is sick or unemployed or maybe even missing? Or is it the poor in third world countries who are out of sight and very often out of mind. I want to close with perhaps the most challenging and in the context of tonight's parable the most appropriate verses of all. Matthew 25 Then he will say to those on his left Depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Wealth isn't bad. After all, Abraham, who's mentioned in this passage, and others, were wealthy. But wealth brings with it certain responsibilities, a certain stewardship. We will give an account for how we handle the wealth that God has given us. Generally speaking, we in the Western world, even the poorest, enjoy a lifestyle far above a huge slice of the world's population. We have relative wealth. Perhaps not relative to our own culture, but relative to the global village that we can affect with our giving. We call ourselves Bible-believing Christians, Christians who have the benefit of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if we don't notice and minister to the poor, what excuse will we have? In the final analysis, the rich man's punishment is not for being rich, but for neglecting the scriptures and what they teach. That doesn't mean that we should give out of guilt or give unwisely or give to whoever cries the loudest. Instead, we are to give out of the love of God within us. Not selfishly to lessen our guilt, but selflessly to care for someone else's need. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is about money. Okay. Money and wealth and self-centeredness. And mercy. It is especially a parable about mercy. Tonight's service has been 
about mercy, God's mercy, God's grace to us, undeserving. Yet he left the riches and the splendor of heaven and came to us.